Um, welcome. It's great to uh, see you all this morning. My name is Brian. And uh, we have in the last uh, few months been walking through a series on the book of Ephesians, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians found in the New Testament. Today, we are actually going to be starting a, uh, a new series, stepping back from Ephesians for a while, for the next six weeks. We're going to be in a series called Reflections from the Wilderness or In the Wilderness. What does it say on there? I think Reflections, uh, Wilderness Reflections, neither one. Okay, perfect. So, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I think it's no secret for all of us that the last several years have been challenging. They've uh, put us up against obstacles that maybe we didn't anticipate facing in our lives. And many of us have... Uh, you know, struggled and wrestled with what does it mean to uh, experience trial and suffering well. We've also experienced um, anxiety and, uh, you know, maybe even depression in various ways in this last season. And so in this series, we're going to be reflecting on that phenomenon and trying to learn and wrestle with what it means to be faithful to Jesus in that. Um, so if you would, um, let's pray. And then we're going to dive into a passage from the letter um, of James, okay? Lord Jesus, we um, want to come to you with uh, our burdens and ask you to show us your purposes in the circumstances of our lives, that we would not be tossed around by the storms of life, but that we would be anchored in our hope, in our assurance uh, that comes from you. Lord, teach us even today to find joy in the trials and the difficulties that we face. Um, we pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so I'm going to start actually by reading uh, a poem. I did not write this poem. Uh, it's actually a, a hymn from a person you may recognize. His name was John Newton. He was a you know, former slave trader in the 18th century turned pastor uh, and hymn writer. And one of his most famous hymns was, of course, Amazing Grace. But this hymn is one that I think is a, really, uh, is a really challenging one. And it's called, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. I'm going to read it for you. I don't want you to pay attention to what he says. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Maybe that's a prayer that you've prayed. It was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. In a moment, right? Answer that prayer. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, 
With his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? It is in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. See, in our view, naturally, Sufferings and challenges and obstacles and difficulties that we face in life generally just suck, right? That's the way we view them. And actually, this is pretty, pretty natural, right? We think, okay, well, suffering exists in the world because of sin, right? That's true. Uh, it's human sin that introduced suffering into the world. Trials and tribulations that we experience also may, uh, in some way, the, the devil or the powers of uh, darkness may be involved in this kind of work in the world and even in our own lives, right? So we tend to think, okay, sin is the origin of this. The devil is involved in this somehow, maybe. And uh, so I just hate it, and I want to avoid it, and I want it to stop, right? We also... Uh, we highly value in our culture uh, honesty of expression and genuineness, right? So we, we rightly, I think, we want to give ourselves and the people around us room to, um, to lament when we experience troubles. We want to give ourselves and others around us room even to complain or just to express the difficulty that we're going through. I think that's right, too. That's the Bible gives us examples of that from like the Psalms, right? That this is something that we need to be doing as Christians. But in all of this, James comes to us with a very strange command. And I want you to look in your handouts and you'll find the passage that we're going to be talking about today. All right. This is James chapter one. We're not going to read all of it, but we will be talking about uh, some select portions of it. All right. He says in verse uh, verses two and three. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We'll just stop there for a minute. Count it all joy my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What's strange about this, right, is that somehow he's saying that in our trials or in the struggles that we encounter in life, that we are supposed to be joyful. Where is the place for joy in our trials or our suffering? That's the question today. It's got to be somewhere, right? Where is, that, where is that place? My contention is that our view of trials as painful and you know, 
things to lament in is that's a that's a true response, a helpful response, but it's an incomplete response. Our response to trials is not complete until we experience that pain, lament about that pain, and then somehow try to find joy. Now, I want to acknowledge uh, that my experience, my own experience of like trial and suffering is actually probably relatively limited. Some of you may have experienced more suffering and trial than I have. Um, and so maybe, <laughs> you know, I don't want to sound like I know the answers <laughs> from up here and that I've got a pat answer for you in the suffering that you're experiencing, right? You may have, you may have been challenged in ways that I have not. So I want you to hear this from the scripture and not from me, right? Okay. So why is it that we can experience joy in trial? The answer comes in verses three and four. James says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. All right, so I just have, I have three brief points for you, okay? James says that joy is possible when you're experiencing trial because we know three things, all right? Because we can have a perspective on that trial that consists of three things. First, we know that trials are a testing of our faith. Second, we know that trials produce steadfastness or endurance. And then three, we know that trials that produce that steadfastness, when that steadfastness is exercised and developed over time, it makes us whole and complete people. Okay? So this is, we're just going to walk through these three, three things briefly. So first, James says that trials are a testing of our faith. Do you see that? He says, for you know, he said, you can count it all joy. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So he calls the trial a testing of your faith. Now, it's actually interesting that he uses this terminology, right, for the kinds of obstacles and challenges that we face in life, that he calls them trials or testing. Joey and I, my wife and I, um, we have been on a search for better a better night's sleep. Uh, have, have any of the rest of you traveled that road? Um, okay. <laughs> so we bought a new mattress and, you know, whether or not we're entirely happy with it is we're still on that journey. Um, but we also bought an adjustable bed. Okay. So this is, you know, you get the little remote, you know, and it's like, you know, and your legs go up too. And it's, I mean, it's pretty cool. Um, one of the things I was not quite expecting, I think there are some, they make them differently, right? But, uh, I was laying there, you know, I got my nightstand and like my books on my nightstand or whatever. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to read, you know, and then I go, and I'm like, whoa, where did my nightstand go? You know, <laughs> it's like, didn't really think about that. Um, <clears throat> so, but we, 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 uh, got this adjustable bed on a, on a trial, right? we were not necessarily anticipating that we would keep it. And in fact, we returned it. Um, but we took it in order to test it, right? It was a trial period. 
And what, what did, I, I want you to think, what did we do when we were testing or had that bet on a trial? Well, what we were doing is we were taking what was theoretical, right, about this bed that it, you know, so far, as far as we knew, it was just, actually it was, it was just sitting in a box, right? It apparently had all these characteristics and functionality, but something had to happen for us to prove that that was true. And that was, we had to take it out of the box and we had to test it or try it. And it's exactly the same way, I think, that James would tell us when God allows us to experience uh, difficulties or, or, or challenges or suffering, right? That he's actually applying a certain pressure to our lives so that we would prove ourselves to be who we are made to be in Jesus, right? We have all of these characteristics. Um, we have become new people in Jesus, right? But those, when the, if those things aren't tested, it's just going to be theoretical. We're just going to be sitting in a box. But James tells us that these trials, we can count them as joy because they are a, they are a testing of our faith that brings out the characteristics and functions of our new life in Christ in the same way that when we took that bed out of the box, we, we put it to work, right? We made it be what it was supposed to be. <clears throat> now, there's actually a potential confusion about uh, trials and testing, okay? And this is brought up later in this chapter in verse, uh, I believe it's verse 13. Let me check. Yeah, verse 13 through 15. And this is actually exposed this like tension about what God is doing when he allows us to experience trial is brought up by the fact that in the original language in which this was written, in Greek, the word for trial is the same word that we will often translate as temptation. Okay, did you know that? Trial and temptation are in Greek the same word. So later on in this chapter, he says, let in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, or that is tried or tested, I am being tested or tried or tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts or tries no one. All right, what is he doing here? Well, first of all, I think he's playing on this, this like nuance of the word, right? If you think about it, every test is also, or every trial experience of suffering or difficulty is actually a temptation, right? Because in every experience of difficulty, we have a choice for how we're going to respond, whether we're going to respond with a sinful response or a response of trust and, and, and faith, right? So trials are actually, every, every trial is, is a kind of temptation, right? And in fact, every temptation to sin is also a kind of trial or test. So, if we recognize that this is true, we could actually think, well, if God allows me to go through trials, is he just like setting me up for failure, right? Is he trying to get me to do something wrong so that I'll fall and stumble, right? Maybe you've thought that about experiences that you've experienced in your life, been angry with God that, hey, why are you making me go through this when you know I'm going to fail? But James wants to clarify. He says, 
um, he says, God actually doesn't test or tempt anyone. <laughs> That's a very strange statement because it's patently wrong. <laughs> oh, hear me out. It's, it's, when you look at the rest of scripture, it's very clear that God does, in fact, test people. Okay? Like, for example, he says in the book of Deuteronomy about the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites after they left Egypt in the Exodus. He says, um, uh, where is it? And you shall remember that the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Right? So what do you mean, James, that God doesn't test anyone? <laughs> he tested the Israelites, right? He put them through a trial or allowed them to experience it. Well, I think what he's saying is, God may allow us to experience difficulties, sufferings as tests in our life, but he is not doing that in order to set us up for failure, right? He is not doing that in order to tempt us in that sense, to make us fall or to stumble. In fact, the, the potential for stumbling or for falling into sin in those moments is in fact, that, that in fact comes from within us, right? He says in verse 14, God doesn't test or tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So the reality is that the temptations that accompany our sufferings and difficulties are not from God, but birthed in our own sinful desires, but God allows us to come into trials and to face our own sinfulness in the process for good purposes. Okay. So that's the first point. We can count it all joy because the trials are like tests of our faith that um, allow us to prove or to show or enact who we are actually made to be. We can count it all joy in our trials because the trials produce steadfastness or endurance, right? You see that knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, he says in verse three. <clears throat> so this is actually where the testing of adjustable beds is a bit different than the testing of Christians. Because when we tested that adjustable bed, we didn't actually improve it, right? It didn't become any better by our using of it. But when God tests us or allows us to experience trials, those trials actually make us grow. The only way, in fact, to develop strong, enduring faith in Jesus is to practice our faith through difficulty, right? Nobody becomes an athlete by watching football on TV. Uh, a while back, there were some studies done on, uh, you've probably heard about this, on peanut allergies, right? Where they would have, <clears throat> uh, I guess, people in the medical field, the, the movers and shakers of the medical world, um, felt like it was a good idea to make kids uh, avoid peanuts because of potential for allergies, right? And then the fruit of this kind of came to the surface over a number of years that more and more kids were developing peanut allergies. And they realized this was because no one was being exposed to peanuts. 
And that in fact, it's better to expose kids to peanuts earlier in their life so that they develop uh, some sort of resistance to that allergy, right? So it's similar, right, when God allows us to experience testing. The fact is that that strain or that pressure that God allows to be put on our life makes us stronger. It produces in us steadfastness or endurance. Um, I think about this some, some as like a parent, right? There are times when I allow my kids to go through things that are hard for them and to might actually open up the possibility for them to make bad choices. And it's my desire, you know, my impulse is to step in and help to shield them from the difficulty and also to make sure that I guide them into the right path or make sure they take the right choice. But sometimes I, I just let them do it, right? Because unless I let them experience that kind of pressure, then they will never grow into the mature person that I want them to be. And this is the way it is, I think, with God and us. We can rejoice because we know that the wrestlings that these trials uh, bring to us produce in us strong and persevering faith. There's an old monk from the uh, 14th century, I think, named Thomas from a place called Kempis, otherwise known as Thomas a Kempis, this guy's name. And he wrote a kind of reflection, mostly on the monastic life called The Imitation of Christ. And in this book, he writes this, always be ready for battle if you wish for victory. You cannot win the crown of patience without a struggle. If you refuse to suffer, you refuse the crown. All right, now point number three. We talked about how this is a testing of our faith. We talked about how it produces steadfastness in us. And then finally, we know that that steadfastness developed over time through these experiences makes us whole or integrated and complete people. This is what he says in verse four. He says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now I wanna unpack these two words, perfect and complete a little bit, okay? I, I, I don't love the translation perfect because Perfect in our in the English language has, you know, connotations that are very, I think, different. We, you know, it's like without any faults and so forth. I don't think that's what he's quite getting at here. What what this word means, I'm actually going to give you the Greek word because I've talked about it in sermons before. You might run across it again. The word is teleos, okay? In other words, he's saying you will become, through these trials, a teleos person. Now, what does teleos mean? Well, it means something like um, whole. It means something like integrated, by which I mean that one part of you is worked into and connected with the other part of you. It means maybe you could think of it as like being aligned with yourself, 
where you're not one thing in one circumstance and another thing in another circumstance or one thing one day and another thing the next day. You're a teleos person. In other words, you are, um, you are integrated, you are aligned, and um, you know, not separated or shattered or, um, or fractured as a person. Let me give you a couple of examples of the way this word is used in the New Testament. So first, later on in the book, uh, this book or letter of James, he talks about how a person who uh, is able to bridle their tongue, the way that they talk, is a teleos person. Okay, listen to this. It's from chapter three. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a teleos person, he says able also to bridle his whole body. It says, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse those who are made in the image of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What is he saying? He's saying, look, look at all these contradictions in a person who cannot bridle their tongue or control what they say, right? They're a contradicted person. They bless and they curse. They say this, to, in this circumstance, they say that in another circumstance. They're like a grapevine who produces figs or, you know, um, a tree, a fig tree that produces olives. You see? This is the opposite of being a teleos person or a whole or integrated person to be a person who's divided.